I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Sir Angus Scott is a compatriot of mine. I infer from his name. I've never spoken to him, never met him. I had no part in the tabling of his petition, which was launched immediately, that the news was deliberately smuggled out just before the bells on Hugmanay that Tony Blair was going to be elevated to the highest echelon of knighthood, a member of the Royal Garter. Uh, Angus Scott beat me to it. I was still writing my petition, and I'm glad that he did, because coming from him, a person on the opposite side of politics, to me, has been able to garner support across all of the parts of the political spectrum in a way that a petition tabled by me might not have as effectively been able to do. So I'm only interested in the outcome of actions, not the credit for them, but I have to give credit to this man who's not a politician, has never been involved in politics, but who found the right moment and the right words to table on change.org, and he has produced a miracle. Well over a million people. You remember, I had a dream last week. I spoke about it in my monologue last week about how we had to get to a million. It was a dream. But actually, on Friday, we passed the one million mark. Surely the fastest million dollar, million signature petition ever. And it's still growing and growing and growing. There is change.org. We still need your signatures because, well, we had well over a million in the million man-woman march on February 15, 2003, against the war. So we ought to be able to do even better than that, given that a whole generation of people in Britain could not have been on that march and indeed could not have known what they know now, uh, that the war was based on a pack of lies. This is very important. Her Majesty the Queen has somehow been induced to give the highest possible award to a man who lied to her, lied to her armed forces, lied to her parliament, lied to her people about the need for a war, an invasion, and occupation of Iraq. Quite apart from the fact that a million people lie in the cold earth this evening that might otherwise have been alive if this liar had not hoodwinked everyone except those of us who stood against him, into an illegal and utterly pointless and absolutely counterproductive invasion and occupation of Iraq. A million Iraqis, British soldiers, 
American soldiers, soldiers from other nationalities. And then there's the matter of cascading ISIS and Al-Qaeda around the world. How many other lives has that cost? How much more blood has that spilled? And as I frequently point out, we haven't reached the bottom yet, not by a long chalk. The lives of the youngest person in your household will still be affected, will still develop under a cloud in the deformation of the world uh, that this liar and his war has caused into human society. It has extremized, fanaticized some of the worst elements in the world. It has got people, their throats cut, their heads cut off. It has got hundreds of thousands of dead people around the world in the name of an Islamist fanaticism, the oxygen for which was provided by the imbecile George W. Bush and his brain, Tony Blair. Don't expect me to call him Sir Tony, uh, Your Highness. I think that his crime in Iraq should have led him to a trial at the tribunal in The Hague for war crimes and crimes against humanity. But even, Your Majesty, if you can't accept that, you have to face this fact. This man and his grisly missus carefully cheated Her Majesty's Treasury out of hundreds of thousands of pounds in the property transaction relating to the Malabone affair revealed in the Pandora Papers. This man's attitude to the city of London, along with Gordon Brown, led to the crash in 2008, the reverberations from which also have never stilled. We have been living in austerity for 13 long years because Tony Blair and his friend Bill Clinton decided on the lightest of touches when it came to the regulation of the banking industry. There are so many other examples I could give, Your Majesty. Now, I realize this is really a pickle you're in now. What are you going to do now that you have granted this mass killer, this high honor? I appreciate that it's difficult for you. Even when a million of your subjects have beseeched you to in this petition, and many, many more still will do so. It's difficult for you to find a way out. But if you're looking for a way out, Your Majesty, the thing to do is to get Tony Blair to decline the honor. If he was a man at all, of course, he'd already have declined it. Look at the embarrassment, excruciating, shame that he's brought on you and your house over this honor. If he had any scintilla of decency about him, he would already have declined it. The problem is he has no such scintilla. So you'll have to let it be known to him by one means or another, preferably by many, that he now has to decline this honor because we will not back down, Your Majesty. We have come far in a week. 
with well over a million people behind us. And we will not back down. We will blockade Buckingham Palace rather than allow this war criminal through those gates to be knighted by you. And that would be a terrible end to your long reign, would it not, Your Majesty? It would be a terrible start for your heir and successor, would it not, Your Majesty? This is going to discolor everything about your reign if it ends in this ignominy of hundreds of thousands of us in the mall blockading Buckingham Palace because you decided to honor a war criminal, a liar, a mountbank. Now we have been saved these last 14 years by your late husband. If it were not for the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, Tony Blair would have got this knighthood many years ago. He didn't get it because your husband had the common sense to know that the British people would not look kindly on such an action from the monarch. Sadly, for all of us, Prince Philip is no longer with us. And somebody, I'd like to know who, has prevailed upon you to do what Prince Philip would never have countenanced you doing. It's not too late, Your Majesty, but it's getting late. And you now have to act. Because don't imagine that this mountbank, this con man, this actor manager, Tony Blair, is going to withdraw from this imbroglio with any dignity of his own volition. So we'll be talking about that, I'm sure, in the court. In fact, we've got a poll running now. Should Tony Blair decline the knighthood to save the Queen's blushes? Get voting on that, please, on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube channel, and on my Telegram channel. There are other issues. Of course, I've just finished recording a special podcast on the Maxwells and my part in Robert Maxwell's downfall with our editor, Ron Mackay, whose pension was stolen by uh, the aforementioned Robert Maxwell. Uh, it's a fascinating tale. It'll be out in a week, 10 days or so. And of course, our normal podcast is still uh, breaking all records, charting in all kinds of places. But the Ghislaine Maxwell verdict looked like the vindication of these poor girls that were trafficked and raped by some of the ugliest, vilest men on the planet. But lo and behold, a legal loophole has emerged, which may lead to a retrial and may lead to a different verdict. At least that's the hope of those who harbored Ghislaine Maxwell for so many decades, even after her role in the child trafficking and rape of Jeffrey Epstein must have been abundantly obvious. We'll be talking to a woman who's known Ghislaine Maxwell for 20 years about the Ghislaine Maxwell that she knew. 
and we'll be talking uh, to RTUK's finest. Afsan Ratansi is the best analyst on British television, never mind on RT. In a sane world, he'd be standing in for Andrew Marr now that Marr has slung his hook. He'd be the preeminent uh, political chat show host, news anchor in the country, but he's not. But he is drawing record audiences for going underground on RTUK. And I'll be talking to him about the extraordinary events in Kazakhstan, a place I know quite well. The last time I was there, the former head of the CIA was trying to force his way into my hotel bedroom in Almaty in the middle of the night with my wife in her nightdress and me pushing on the door as he pushed as hard as he could to get into our hotel room. The former head of the CIA, he said he was sleepwalking. Who am I to doubt the word of a former head of the CIA? But I'll tell you what, the Americans didn't stop pushing their way into Kazakhstan then. And what you are seeing on the streets of Almaty and Nur Sultan and across the country is the fruits of another Ukrainian-style regime change operation, another so-called color revolution. But they didn't bargain for a couple of things. First of all, having experienced the Ukrainian disaster, the neighbors of Kazakhstan are not prepared to see Kazakhstan turned into a new Ukraine. And they have collectively come together in the CSTO, Common Security Treaty Organization. And they have, as they are legally obliged to do, flooded their armed forces into Kazakhstan to defeat the terrorist onslaught there. I'll tell you what the West has in mind. And you don't have to look in the crystal ball. You just have to look at the last decade in Syria. Once again, the West is deploying the head-chopping Islamist mass murderers to try and destabilize and, if possible, replace the regime in Kazakhstan with a regime that will break relations with both Russia and China and allow itself to be used as the tunnel to burrow further into the territories of both. Much more also uh, on the uh, weekly podcast, truly extraordinary. I told you that we are number one in Zimbabwe. We're now also charting in places like Qatar and in Oman. We are reaching more and more countries and territories throughout the world. It is the biggest success story I have ever been involved in, and I have been involved in a few. Should Tony Blair decline the knighthood to save the Queen's blushes? A, yes, 85%. B, no, 15%. And on, that's on Twitter. On YouTube, yes, he should decline it. 86% say our YouTube viewers, and 96% say our Telegram viewers. It's always 
a better political class of people on the Telegram channel. At least they usually agree with me in even more overwhelming numbers. But uh, you can vote on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube channel, and on my Telegram. Now, let's take a call on the Blair Knighthood from Cardiff. Matthew, welcome to the show, Matthew. Thank you, George, for having me. It's a lovely pleasure to have you on. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Go ahead. Um, I'd just like to say, George, regarding Tony Blair, um, I agree with basically everything you said. The guy was a warmonger. Should never be awarded knighthood. But it's just occurred to me that um, I've been informed that Tony Blair actually took uh, a shed load of furlough off the government. Is that true, George? Do you know? Well, according to the newspapers, him and his grisly wife took £85,000 in furlough payments from the government. This despite the fact uh, that they are in possession of a £100 million fortune and are guarded round the clock at the taxpayer's expense by no fewer than 27 members of the special branch of the Metropolitan Police, paid for by us, the taxpayer. That's a rotation number, but in the course of any one day, we're paying 27 armed officers to protect these people. They've got 100 million pounds. They've got more than 30 houses. And they're applying for 80,000 pounds worth of furlough. I think that says all, says all about them, Matthew. Yeah, I totally agree. Absolutely no, I didn't even know that. That's blown my mind even further. This is just another reason why people should get on this petition and get it stopped, George. Exactly. Get on the petition if, in the unlikely event, you're watching me, but you haven't yet signed, go to the petition on change.org. It's very important that you do. We've got over a million in less than a week. Imagine if we could get hundreds of thousands more and that that petition kept on growing. And I'll be organized. I, I promise you this. Even if I'm there alone, I'll be outside Buckingham Palace trying to stop the war criminal entering those gates to be knighted. If I can, I'll try and make a citizen's arrest upon him for war crimes and crimes against humanity. Take careful note. That's what I'll be doing. I don't know who will be with me. I'm but with maybe you, some of you will be with me. Matthew's with me. Are you with me? Tell me, are you with me outside the gates of Buckingham Palace? If Blair does not decline this knighthood, we will be there in our thousands to try and stop him from achieving it. Matthew, thanks for the call. Fabrice is in France on Blair. Go ahead, Fabrice. Hi, good evening. Can you hear me? Yes, very clearly. Go ahead, sir. Okay, thank you. Uh, great show, as usual. Love thank you. The, uh, the hot content. It's thank very, you. very good. Thank you. Um, just two, two points I'd like to mention. The first is regarding last week you mentioned about Hitler. Uh, you said he was vegan, but he was kind to, anim and he was kind to animals, but that doesn't make him uh, a good person, and I fully agree with that. Mm -hmm. Just like to point out, though, that he wasn't vegan, and uh, they say he was vegetarian, but he wasn't even vegetarian, in fact. Uh, because he used to eat uh, white sausage, Weissewurst, in uh, places like Munich. Well, I apologize to the vegan and veg even vegetarian <laughs> community if I have 
wrongly yeah, included I, Hitler in their ranks. The point people, I was trying to make is, oh, I understand this, the point. this is you the greatest right mass point. murderer in history. I agree. No, I agree. That's, that's, I agree with the point that you were making. I yeah. just think that in the detail it was wrong. And as well, far as you're quite right to point out white sausage is definitely not, uh, not, vegan, like not vegan material. You're not right. vegetarian either, no, a bit no. like the Dalai Lama who's vegetarian every second day. So, <laughs> with, my, daughter, my daughter was vegetarian for, yeah. I think, four hours. She, oh. g she gave up after four hours, but she, yeah. she had earnest intentions back then. Yeah. Uh, Fabrice, well, uh, how's the yeah. situation in France on, uh, on Tony Blair? Do they ever think about him? What have they been oh, saying about this I, knighthood? That, that would be a, a very... It, it, actually, I, I couldn't tell you. Even though I live in France, I don't follow French politics that closely. Because I, France, I, uh, France saved its honour by refusing to join this war. And uh, the yeah, much maligned Chirac Jacques no. Chirac uh, yeah. maintained the dignity and honor of Correct. France and the French Correct. And, by refusing. And who was it? The Schroeder? Was it the German? Also Gerhard Schroeder, the uh, yeah, German Gerhard chancellor. Schroeder. They he both no. uh, refused to participate. So I and, and, yet we, and yet we still kept, I mean, the narrative of that time, Fabrice, was that this was the West, the international community uh, no, that was invading Iraq. No, that was the yeah, West minus France and Germany. It was the international community minus China, India, Russia, France, yeah. Germany, and a hundred other oh, countries. No, no. I, I, I was against that at the time, and you were as well, and yeah. Schroeder was, and Chirac was, yeah. but they didn't listen. They, they, had, they wanted to go in, sure. no matter what. Yeah, yeah. So, and it was all, uh, point, all planned in advance. Yeah, I go ahead so. quickly, Fabrice. And the, the second, second point, point was regarding the Queen. I was speaking to someone last night about Tony Blair having this knighthood betrothed upon him by the Queen. And I was told, I mean, this person is a relation of mine living in England, that uh, the Queen doesn't choose. She is given a list and she has to choose from the list. But it's not actually the Queen's decision who gets put on the list. Or there are two lists. But this, uh, and I said, well, what about Tony Blair? I, li I said I listened to you. I mentioned your name, mm. of course. And uh, I said I listened to George Galloway, and I'm under the impression that she can choose. She does have the power to put his name, to keep his name on the list or not. And my, this is a relation of mine was quite convinced that it's not the Queen's... Um, her, I wish it were so, uh, Fabrice, because yeah. it was not my intention to be drawn into a confrontation with the Queen because of her long service and great age and, yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, poor state of health by all accounts. Uh, but but I'm afraid she, it isn't true. I'm afraid have... it isn't true. It's the one honor of yeah. them all. The so only so she, queen, only so she, she. She can decide. So she can or she cannot decide. She, she can decide. She can. Indeed, she's the only person who can. It's right. the one honor for which she is personally entirely responsible. It and was on her that list, choice she gets given, to do it. She gets given the list there was by no the list. Prime Minister. There was no there's list. No li there's no list. There's so no where, does, list. where does his name come there's only from? 20, there's only 24 people on in the uh, order of the Garter. Of the Garter, and yes. a vacancy occurred, and she nominated uh, she Tony the, Blair she for the, she, the she nominated. She the Queen. She the Queen. I wish right. I were otherwise, believe me. Yeah. 
Are you sure about it? I'm 100%. You're absolutely absolutely sure. I said this to to my relation, and she said, you know, she's just an average average person like me, and she said, no, 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 George Galloway is wrong. He's probably wrong. I'm I'm, I'm sorry I'm not. I wish I was, but I'm not. Me too. Rafik, thank you, you, Fabrice. We go from France to French-speaking Canada, Montreal, to talk with Rafik. Rafik, welcome to the show. Thank you, George Galloway. Welcome. Go ahead, sir. All right, so I have several issues to talk about regarding this yeah. knighthood. Um, yeah. It goes into a very short, I'm going to be as brief as possible, that the history is very interesting behind uh, the royal family's illegitimacy. First, of course, as we both know, Tony Blair is indeed a war criminal, and he has committed so many atrocities in so many countries, and he has been corrupt in so many ways at home as well. Yet the even bigger scandal that people will have to know is that the House of Windsor, as we, as probably you might know, wasn't called Windsor before 1917, and the 1701 Settlement Act actually banned all traditional forms of succession in Britain and Ireland. So essentially, it is indeed the real name is Saxe-Gotha Coburg, and it came into place from Saxony in Germany, it went to Britain, and it kind of usurped its way into power, essentially. And it broke away with all traditional British forms of royal succession and Irish forms of royal succession. And it brings into mind now that whilst this illegitimate royalty governs, on top of that, it names a war criminal to its highest knighthood. Well, uh, powerful uh, stuff. Uh, it, uh, the the Sachs-Coburg uh, details that you gave are true. I think that uh, Sachs-Coburg was 57th in line to the throne. But helpfully, he was a Protestant, and the other 56 were Roman Catholics. And that's how he came to be uh, the uh, King of Britain. I, I don't myself like to go down the Byzantine corridors of ancient history in these matters. If I could change the rule of succession, I'd say give us uh, Anne. Princess Anne is the best of the royal family by a long chalk. Uh, I'd actually support Queen Anne, good Queen Anne, if uh, they would uh, change the rules of succession. I will not support uh, without a fight Uh, the idea that Prince Charles will succeed Her Majesty the Queen. I will fight for a referendum in this country on the constitutional future of our country, including the monarchy and the House of Lords and uh, the honours system. And I think I'm uh, wrong about that, according to Grace in London. Let's hear. Grace, why am I wrong? Yeah, George, uh, I was just meaning to let you know that it won't be Buckingham Palace where he, where Tony Blair's knighted. It's going to be Windsor Castle, mm-hmm. and it will be on Monday the 13th of June. Well, we must, all, uh, we must all put that in our diary right now. Well, Monday the I've... 13th of June at Windsor Castle. That'll be a fun yes. day out. Exactly. I just wanted the to weather make sure will be, you the, the weather right will address. be nicer too. <laughs> yeah, it would be great. Why don't we can take a picnic with us? Monday the 13th of tomato. June. Please, everyone put that in their diary now. Grace, thank you. 
for you. gracefully pointing out my <laughs> error. It would be, it would be uh, a fantastic uh, boost if we could all descend on the beautiful town of Windsor. Coming up uh, shortly, we've got uh, Conchita Sarnoff, a long time uh, she has known, Ghislaine Maxwell, and I just wondered how she was feeling about the conviction, the imminent sentencing, and the possibility that there'll have to be a retrial. And Conchita joins us now. Conchita, wonderful to see you again. Thanks for coming back. You helped us a lot in the past, talking about Ghislaine Maxwell, understanding uh, the Epstein case. Uh, you've known Maxwell for 20 years. Were you terribly surprised at what you learned in court? Well, first of all, Happy New Year, George. And, and to you, my dear. Thank you for having me on your show. And thank you very much for your interest in this very important case, or cases, may I say, because there are several cases pending yeah. beside Galen's. Yeah. Um, was I surprised? To answer your first question is, I was not surprised, uh, particularly in light of the three jurors who have since confessed that they did not tell the truth in their jury application, as you might know. Um, I was not surprised about the witness's testimony, particularly Carolyn Andrade's, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. And I was not surprised at um, the way that the case unfolded and that there is a possibility of a mistrial. Um, I said that before, I in fact spoke to Emily Maitlis who interviewed Prince Andrew uh, in that infamous interview. And I said to her, Ghislaine, there might be a mistrial if she's ever taken uh, to court um, for, for many reasons. But the most important reason, uh, George, I believe is that there is a lot of money exchanging hands and there are a lot of politicians establishment figures implicated in the case. As you know, there was no plea deal offered by the prosecution to Galen, which is unusual. I mean, it does happen, but it is unusual. Um, so is there going to be a plea deal now? If there is a mistrial, which given the three jurors' confessions seems highly likely, um, will, Galen be able to buy her time by pointing fingers if she hasn't done so already. My fear with Galen is exactly the same fear, not, not that I think, um, well, let me rephrase that. When Epstein was arrested, three days after he was arrested, an FBI, an active FBI agent told me that he would not make it to trial and he said to me, quote, there are towels on the inside, which I didn't quite understand what he meant. I did later. And I believe this time round, as I told former Attorney General Barr, that if Galen points fingers and decides to reveal all, she might not make it either. Uh, she is in jail. She is in the custody of the Bureau of Prisons, and lots of things can happen. 
Very powerful and chilling uh, stuff, uh, Conchita. Um, let's uh, walk, walk it back for a minute because not everyone will be as aware as you and I are about what the grounds for a mistrial would be. If I summarize them thus, it turns out that there are three people who were on the jury who not only had themselves been victims of child sexual abuse, which goes to show just how prevalent child sexual abuse is, something you know in your work, coming to the aid of children and young people that are trafficked, uh, but not only were the three jurors victims of child sexual abuse, they ticked a box on their jury form to say that they were not, had no, uh, had never been victims of child sexual abuse. That's a standout for a retrial, isn't it? Absolutely. One is a standout. Three, most definitely. I wonder, Conchita, if this was entirely an accident or if uh, somehow it was contrived. George, that is the billion-dollar question. And I, I, I don't wish to... I, I don't wish to speculate at this moment because too many things are happening behind the scenes. So perhaps we can talk a little bit later, but I, I do need to say that, and I want to make this clear, when I first broke open the case in 2010 and I spoke to Brad Edwards, who was the attorney who originally represented Virginia Roberts Chufre, which by the way, I'm very uh, puzzled that she was not called in as a witness, even though of course the prosecutors have every right not to call her as a witness because it's their case and they evidently believed that they had a slam dunk case. So there was no need uh, based on what they believed uh, was a, a, an open and shut case um, to call Virginia Roberts Schufre. However, if you read uh, this the, one of the victim's testimony, she told her story to the Daily Mail, Carolyn, who went by the name of Carolyn during the trial, and she was a witness. And because of her testimony, four out of five counts uh, of child sex trafficking uh, were obviously uh, one, right? She was found guilty. So Carolyn claims that Virginia told her back in 2001 that she had a photograph of her uh, of, of her uh, meeting Prince Andrew. And she also told her that Virginia told her in 2001 that she had sexual relations with the prince. Um, and it was Virginia who sued Maxwell to begin with in September of 2015, right before the 2016 presidential elections. And it was also the year that David Boyce, unheard of, would take on the case of the victims such as Virginia. Um, now I can tell you the backstory offline, but the point is um, all this is tied together. And um, I think today's report, uh, Carolyn's report and Carolyn's story is going to shed a very important light on the relationship and why Virginia was not called in as a witness, why perhaps there's going to be a mistrial, perhaps, um, and how this is going to move forward. 
Um, and what are the repercussions in this case? Because there are many. And as you know, Jean-Luc Brunel, who is the third, was the third key procurer uh, using his modeling agency, MC Squared. He is now sitting in a Paris prison uh, awaiting trial as well. So there are many dangling elements to this case. Um, yes, uh, indeed. Uh, now, um, she'll remain in prison. Yes. She will be sentenced unless mm -hmm. the mistrial is declared uh, peremptorily uh, in advance of the sentencing, which I suppose might be possible, but it's quite likely that she'll be sentenced. She'll remain in prison. She won't get bail because uh, all the reasons for not granting her bail remain extant. Um, so your theory is that maybe that would be the time that the state, the prosecutor, would offer a plea bargain. Uh, would that, for that plea bargain to be credible, it would still have to involve her spending many years behind bars, wouldn't it, Conchita? Well, I would presume. Uh, again, this is a presumption. I would presume it would, because as you know, under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which is the federal law, the statute that would put Galen behind bars, a mandatory minimum is 20 years. So at least 20 years under TVPA, which is the reason I wrote the book, the reason I followed the case, the reason I have spent 11 years following this case very closely, because there are three things that we need to understand that I hope you, George, and the rest of your colleagues um, uh, make, make this visible. One, TVPA and, and your UK laws equivalent to TVPA must be enforce, uh, enforced across all jurisdictions. So number two, this is no longer an emerging markets issue which is what everyone thought of back in 2010, that this was just poor criminals trafficking children. No, no, you now have rich men and financial institutions that enable the very rich to continue and to create and to facilitate child sex trafficking operations. That's very important. And number three, that child sex trafficking is a billion dollar global industry. And those were the three reasons I wrote the book, the three reasons I continue to follow this case, and the reasons that this has become my life mission, because we must together stop child sex trafficking. Uh, amen. Uh, the, the book that you've written, the work that you're doing uh, is, is truly magnificent. Um, but let me just uh, pick up one point that you made. Uh, this is not poor criminals trafficking children. This is rich men and women, uh, we now can say, in the case of Maxwell. But not just rich men and women trafficking children, but trafficking them for other rich men and women, and powerful uh, men and women. After all, one of the great unanswered questions of the Ghislaine Maxwell affair surely is that... Was she pimping for Epstein alone? Was she trafficking for Epstein alone? Or were all these rich and powerful men who 
swarmed over uh, the townhouses and the ranches and the islands because they were so drawn to the magnetic personality of Jeffrey Epstein. Well, they also involved in this sordid criminal enterprise. Well, they're the end users. Amen. And all of that and all your questions are going to be answered in my upcoming book, Buried Secrets. So you will learn the answers to all your questions in that upcoming book. When is that book coming out? Uh, hopefully by the end of this year, or by the fall of 2022. Okay, I look forward very much to interviewing you, Conchita, when uh, publication uh, comes along. Meanwhile, I'm extremely grateful to you uh, for joining us this evening, as I was on the previous occasions that you did so. A very uh, good afternoon to you. Thank you for joining me. Now, the one and only Afsan Ratansi joins me. Now, the host of Going Underground, the best political program on British television, never mind on RT, RT's very own Afsan Ratansi joins me to talk about events in Kazakhstan. Afsan, thank you uh, for giving up your uh, downtime. You, you, <laughs> thank you, you, you for inviting me. You work uh, uh, all the time here and now you're joining me when you're relaxing at home, I'm grateful. Um, the events in Kazakhstan could alternately be seen as uh, embittered and unequal citizens of Kazakhstan, a post-Soviet state ruled by an oligarchy with a grossly unequal distribution of wealth, not just between rich and poor, but between north and south and different uh, sectors of the community. Or it could be what the uh, Kazakh government say is a regime change operation launched by the West. Or it could be both. Where do you stand? It could be both. And uh, you started the show off, as you often do, with the number of audiences that Moats, mother of all talk shows, goes out to in the United States, but to the global south. So I suppose for your American audience, who may be wondering why should we even be bothered about Kazakhstan, it is, of course, because it threatens world stability. It also, uh, again, addressing the American audience of this show, uh, if uh, some of those listening or watching are amongst those 40 million who cannot eat tonight without federal aid, they may be wondering why there were jobs in Kazakhstan, courtesy of the National Endowment for Democracy. People watching can uh, see the banner here. There are lots of jobs recently. $50,000 for International Bureau of Human Rights that the US taxpayer, US public money was going to, democratic ideas and values. What were all these National Endowment for Democracy jobs paid for by the US uh, public, US public money going for to Kazakhstan in recent years? What was Tony Blair? who uh, I know, I call him Sir Tony Blair, unlike you, of course, was advising the dictator of Kazakhstan. What exactly is this story about? Because now all we hear about is how evil Kazakhstan is. Um, the dichotomy uh, you uh, asked me about uh, in this question is, is central. And I think what we see here, uh, based on the evidence so far, is again, we have a developing world leader, uh, Pache Gaddafi, Assad, who cozied up to the West, and the West have double-crossed him. And uh, therefore, uh, we have to be very, very worried. 
about uh, what may uh, lie in store for, for Kazakhstan. Although Russia and Armenia and Belarusia uh, and the other members of the CSTO, they acted so quickly and uh, so powerfully. Uh, I wouldn't, if this was a regime change operation, my betting is that for now it's failed. The problem will be if they have a Syria scenario in mind, if they're going to fund terrorism on a slow burn in this most combustible of areas. Do you think that might be what they've got in mind? I mean, again and again, isn't it? Since, uh, in fact, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 last year, more and more commentators came out of the woodwork saying they know very little in the State Department. Antony Blinken, uh, famous for his support of the Libyan uh, catastrophe in, uh, on the Mediterranean, uh, if they are going to try the ISIS-Daesh uh, model again, and people who are surprised to learn that the United States and Britain and NATO were supporting ISIS-Daesh and al-Qaeda in Syria, uh, there's lots of it in, on the internet and lots of, I think, peer-reviewed political papers now that demonstrate that. Uh, you're right, George. Obviously, China and Russia border Kazakhstan. They're not going to be hoodwinked again the way they were over Libya, especially given uh, how important Kazakhstan is uh, to Russia and to China. And the idea uh, may be somewhere in the vaults of the State Department or at Langley at the CIA that they can hit Ukraine uh, this week, because let's not forget, they're meeting in Geneva today. This week's a big week, uh, meeting in Vienna, the uh, Organization of Security Council in Europe. Uh, big meetings this week where uh, Blinken and Stoltenberg of NATO are going to threaten Russia with, uh, well, if, if some of the briefings are to be believed today, all-out war, World War Three. if they think they can do that on one flank and Kazakhstan on the eastern flank, I don't think Beijing and Moscow are going to have any of it. No, that's right. I mean, they tried uh, in the first uh, 48 hours to question the right of the CSTO partners to intervene in this way, when in fact it's not a right but an obligation, a treaty obligation, rather like NATO has treaty obligations of joint cooperation and defense. Then they tried to say China will not be happy uh, about Russia and and Armenia and Belarus going in there until China said, we're very happy with it. Uh, we have as much to lose from instability uh, in, uh, in, on the Eurasian uh, uh, plane uh, than, uh, than Russia does. So if they are going to achieve it, it's going to have to be through the Islamist path. Now, Several of the Kazakh policemen have already been beheaded. Uh, the government of Kazakhstan at least claims that many of those arrested uh, are uh, Arabic speakers. In other words, have come in, perhaps from Syria, uh, through the Central Asian uh, republics, uh, and have entered Kazakhstan as part of, uh, of a carefully planned operation. What say you? Yeah, these movements are, have been occurring. I mean, look at the conflict in Azerbaijan, Armenia last year, where 
there were reports, credible reports, from that uh, there were uh, Islamists uh, previously backed, presumably from London and, and uh, Washington, entering Azerbaijan to fight with Armenia. Uh, we are relying on Kazakh authorities for the beheadings, and uh, one has to say condolences from, I'm sure, from both of us for the reported more than 160 dead, and uh, let alone fears of the uh, genuine working classes of Kazakhstan who've been demonstrating against the elites, uh, whose uh, money actually of the Kazakh authorities is probably here in London. It's probably uh, here in London. People, it's, all, it's all the money's over here. Surprising you don't, I mean, of course, if money really talks, there may be elite interests who are worried as well about uh, uh, Anthony Blinken and Joe Biden thinking they can start this war and employ ISIS, uh, Daesh in this way, thus destabilizing financial interests. But uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, Beijing and Moscow. I mean, already, if you're going to watch NATO nation media, uh, the uh, state-mandated British Broadcasting Corporation here, or, you know, read The Economist magazine or something, immediately it is, oh, well, this is terrible for Moscow-Beijing relations. I think, um, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm I think sure they you know better. Uh, they know better now. But that's why your comparison with Gaddafi and others was so apposite, because as it happens, and I know this personally, as it happens over the last couple of years, uh, the regime and the oligarchs in, in uh, Kazakhstan have been trying to distance themselves from Russia and cozy up further to the West. As you say, much of their money and property and their uh, visits to the bordellos and the casinos and so on is already here. Uh, the oligarchy uh, is a big customer of uh, the West so far as banking and luxury goods and so on uh, is concerned. So just like Gaddafi made a turn to the West and then the West literally stabbed him in the back, that's what would appear now to have happened to the Kazakh rulers. Yeah, these elite interests in global... global uh... Uh, South countries in developing nation countries, they never seem to learn, do they? But of course, it, it poses a difficulty. We know the way that Beijing uh, always likes to say it will never interfere in the political processes. So uh, the real working classes of Kazakhstan are going to get hold, no help from uh, Beijing. And uh, Moscow is uh, going to just try and restore order and uh, then maybe leave them to it, rather like in Belarus. So uh, given the gross human rights violations of the Kazakh uh, regime, again, how do the ordinary Kazakh people get through their uh, being used as proxies, uh, being hijacked by uh, Islamist causes so uh, uh, beloved of NATO? It's a terrible time for the Kazakh, 20 million Kazakh uh, population. Uh, let's hope uh, at least this will completely put a stop to any neoliberal processes that were being uh, started by the elites in Kazakhstan. That's in exactly why they increased the petrol price. Uh, albeit from a very low 13 cents a litre to 32 cents a litre uh, for LPG. But they were doing that to please the, the World Bank and the IMF and the dictates of those who say uh, that we can only support free market economies. And Kazakhstan better stop all these subsidies and public ownership of various uh, services and institutions. And it goes even further, doesn't it? Yugoslavia. 
I mean, we saw when Bin Laden's friends were uh, trading in Bosnia. I mean, this is, this is the playbook, as we know, along with the National Endowment for Democracy, as long, I mean, and Beijing is even more aware, obviously, because of the Uyghur situation that will again be flooding the headlines for the Winter Olympics uh, in a few a few weeks' time, all the so-called human rights abuses. Um, I'm, I mean, I, I'm not uh, happy about this shoot-to-kill policy by the Kazakh government, but what, what does Anthony Blinken think or Joe Biden think happens in Guantanamo Bay, where they torture people and where the world seems to have forgotten about. What gives the right of Washington mm. to talk about human rights mm. or NATO countries with their black sites to ever talk about human rights in Kazakhstan, given their record of? And of course, you alluded to this earlier because of Britain and Sakir Starmer honoring Sir Tony Blair, tens of millions wounded, killed or displaced. There is no right by Yeltsin Stoltenberg or... Uh, any leader in, that supported uh, these wars to talk about human rights in Kazakhstan, let alone in Xinjiang, uh, let alone, of course, in Russia. Uh, Afsan Ratansi of Going Underground on uh, RT. War, what is it good for? Well, it's been good for Tony Blair. He's made a £100 million personal fortune directly and indirectly out of the war. And now, if present intentions are maintained, he will join the most elite echelon of uh, the British aristocracy as not just a knight in very bloody armor, but as a member of the Order of the Garter. Uh, but that's if present intentions are maintained. In the poll that I'm running, thousands of you have voted overwhelmingly 84%, 88%, 96% that Blair should decline the knighthood to save the Queen's blushes. But of course, we'd only be having this conversation if there had not been a, an uprising across the land of the news, over the news that was delivered under the cover of New Year's Eve, and crucially, if leadership had not been shown in tabling a petition behind which everyone could get behind. And that's down to my next guest. So eminent, I called for him to be made a knight. That's how highly I think of my next guest. He is, for me at least, the people's knight, Sir Angus Scott, and he joins us now, Angus, you're a voice artist and a presenter. You're not a politician of any kind. If you have any politics, they're the opposite of mine, you told me. Uh, so how come we end, you and I, uh, end up in double harness on this? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think it's very telling that we are indeed uh, in this position. Um, 2003, I was a young man. Um, I served in the Territorial Army. I was, in many ways, the polar opposite to yourself, George. And 2003, Tony Blair took us to war. I was apoplectic. It just, well, for all the reasons that you have uh, very eloquently, much more eloquently than I can ever dream of, of displaying, explained why, why that was deeply, deeply wrong. And, and I think that's indicative, and this part, the, the petition itself is, has proven to the world that this wasn't about politics, it was about what was morally right and what was morally wrong. And it was so morally wrong that it has united every shade of the political spectrum in saying in one big voice, this was deeply wrong on every possible level. And it's not just political. I've had um, fabulous messages from from you know, very refined ladies in the shires, you know, people who have no interest in politics whatsoever. And they have thanked me personally Thank you for giving me a voice because this was so deeply wrong. I just had to join in in this clamour to, to tell the world, to send a message to the world how utterly wrong this whole thing is. Well, uh, as you describe it, it's an uncanny echo of the, the great march on February 15, 2003, which also was attended by every shade of political opinion including many refined old ladies uh, holding banners, make tea, not war, and, and so on. It was uh, one of the most extraordinary cultural events of my lifetime. It was the coming together of the best of the British people. And of course, everyone on the march was representing several others, uh, their own families, uh, not least, uh, that they had left behind at home, in all the parts of the kingdom. Uh, it's odd, isn't it, that Tony Blair has now twice been the lightning rod that has united the country against him. Absolutely. Um, it's, and I think the big thing that has struck me is just the depth of passion across the board. I cannot think of any other human being since 1945 who has evoked such deep universal emotion across our nation. And the reason is very clear. It's, it's because of, for me, it's two words. One word is lies, obviously, but the biggest word of all is betrayal. The, one, one of the, the worst sins any human being could, could do against another human being is betrayal in, in any context. He has managed to betray just about every section of our society. He betrayed the left, he betrayed our armed forces, and the list goes on. And as a result of that, that's why I think this depth of feeling has, has, has just manifested itself so powerfully. And more importantly, under any other issue, after 14 years, it would be long forgotten, it might be bubbling away quietly, but it's forgotten. The fact that we are a decade and a half down the line, and suddenly, over a million people within a few days have just come out and said, you know, with a level of anger, it just proves just how, 
how significant this is and likewise actually how significant this message is because it doesn't come from one, any one section of society it comes from our good society as a whole uh, why do you think it took 14 years my thesis that i adumbrated earlier in the show is that prince philip would have been dead against it he had a particular dislike of new labor of tony blair uh, over the Diana funeral issue and all kinds of other things. I think that Prince Philip would have put the kibosh on this. Uh, now that he's no longer with us, somebody somewhere in the palace has prevailed on the Queen to take an action which is really quite self-harming for her and for the monarchy. Yeah, I think this is a very interesting point and it does actually raise a lot of discussions around this whole area. Why have they waited 14 years? I think that in itself is a tacit admission from the palace and the establishment that it's wrong. <laughs> if it wasn't, they would have done it 14 years ago. So clearly they have held back thinking, we are now in some form of quandary, because actually, from what I understand, um, it, it's not, uh, obviously it's not uh, a gift of the government, it is the gift of the palace. But it's actually not, it's not the Queen hasn't sat down and said, right, I want to give Tony Blair an award. Apparently it's convention, it's, it's convention, it's, it's an all, almost an automatic honour to Prime Ministers. Well, it would have been a convention 14 years ago, Angus. Exactly, and that's my point. If, if it was a convention and if he frankly deserved it, he should have got it 14 years ago. The fact that they haven't, I think, implies that they know in the palace that it's deeply wrong. And they tried to, I think they've, they've strung it down the line as long as they dare, and with all due respect to the Queen, and I am a, a, you know, a very staunch monarchist, I think, unfortunately, um, as you say, with the passing of, uh, of the Duke of Edinburgh, that um, he was a very steadying force. And the Queen has never in, what is it, 70 years, ever put one foot wrong. Unfortunately, biology is biology. She is a 94-year-old lady. I sense that the weight of decision-making um, has moved more to her advisers than the Queen itself, and I'm being very presumptuous here, you know, apologies if offence the palace and all that, but you know, biology is biology, and I, I, she would not have made this decision 10 years ago. The, but the problem now is that they have now entered a position where they've got themselves in a corner. How on earth do they get, get out of it? Well, if they didn't know, in the words of the late and great Scottish comedian and actor Duncan McRae, uh, when the man says, I didn't ken, I didn't ken, he answers, well, you can know. Uh, they know now, if they didn't know before, that this act is a, a very damaging one that has divided the country instead of uniting it, turned people against uh, the people who decided it, has further tarnished the name of the royal family and the institution of the monarchy. How could it be otherwise? Uh, so they know now. How do they get out of it, Angus? Agreed. And I think, again, I know your views on, on the monarchy. And I, as, as, a, as a royalist, even my loyalty has been deeply shaken by actually all the events over the last couple of years with various members of the royal family. Princess Anne, I actually would thoroughly support your campaign. To make uh, let's you and I, let's get a petition <laughs> up. Make Anne the next monarch. I'm a lady who really has not put a, a, a she, well, she, I, I've met her, I've met her daughter. She's an outstanding figure. She works hard. She doesn't spend 
anything like what the others do. She's an, she's an acme of, uh, of public uh, duty. Uh, but of course, she's not next in line. Yeah, of course. And of course, we are bound by the Constitution, et cetera, et cetera. But so I think, you know, to, to move the discussion, discussion on, I think we, we now, and I think you have talked about this earlier, um, we now need to look at, OK, let's be pragmatic about this. On the assumption that the palace cannot rescind this, um, where do we go next? And the obvious next step is, OK, let's look at the recipients and, and Mr Blair himself. Now, Mr Blair's supporters are very vociferous and very um, loud in their support of Mr Blair. They say he's a very honourable, a very decent, a very principled man. OK, well, I say to Mr Blair, if you are that honourable, and as you have said earlier, let's spare the Queen's blushes, do the honourable thing. Why do you need another award, especially, frankly, one that's a bauble, because if it's conventional, you know, so what? It's, it, it doesn't mean that much. You turn it down. Well, but I don't that... know if he if he if he likes a garter uh, around his uh, thigh. Uh, if he does, maybe that's the attraction. But as Peter Hitchens pointed out in the paper today, is is he really in need of a of, of a bauble? He can buy one on the internet. Um, it, it seems a big price to pay, and we've got to make it a bigger price for him to pay to accept this award. Absolutely, and, and, and again, I think we have to make the assumption that uh, Mr. Blair will prove his critics right and that he won't turn this down. So we then need to look at what do we do next then as, as a, this huge, powerful, united voice across the nation. And it's very clear to me, uh, and I, I've been contacted by a lot of different sides of our society who have, have been brilliantly supportive of this campaign. And, and I'll just take this, moment in time to thank you, George, for your own massive support, which has done so much for the campaign. Um, everybody has said to me independently, look, we need our voices to be heard, not just online, but I think we need our voices to be heard out there in the streets. Um, we have, uh, I do understand actually, as per one of your earlier callers, I understand it is Windsor and it is June. Um, and that does give us six months to Start putting logistics together. Let's draw together all these fabulous sections of our society, all united in this one message. Let's draw upon that. Let's mobilise all these sections of society. Let's get them down like we did in 2003. And let's get them to march, whether it's in London, whether it's in Windsor. You know, we can work that out. But I think we need to get this message loud and clear. We need to beat that drum as loudly until their ears ring. Well, we'll march behind you. You're the best person to lead it. And uh, we'll continue to publicise the petition and the action that needs to uh, be taken. There it is now on the screen. Please, don't just sign it yourself. Make sure your wife, your husband, your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your neighbour, your workmates, get them to sign it. Let's add to this enormous, gigantic swell, upsurge of opposition that Angus has uh, made possible by tabling uh, this, uh, this petition. Uh, so let's stay in close touch, uh, Angus. We will do everything that we can to uh, mobilize, but I'm glad to hear you say uh, that online is great, but it's not enough. Uh, it's a mile wide, but it's an inch deep. We need to have people on the streets of Windsor in June. It helps, it'll be a glorious day, I can now predict. And we should make sure that we have a gigantic number of people so that 
if the war criminal is going to uh, embarrass the Queen by continuing to insist that he's taking this honour, that he'll have to walk through us or be driven at speed through us first. And the whole world will see, and the royal family will see, uh, that uh, it was not in our name, to borrow a phrase from uh, 15, 16 uh, years ago. Uh, Angus, I'm so impressed by you. I'm going to install you with some very fine people in the mother of all talk shows, Hall yeah, of oh, great. Fame. Thank you, very much. you are now a member of the Hall of Fame of the mother of all talk shows. If I could give you a knighthood, I would, but I feel sure that the people will agree with me that you are the people's knight. Sir Angus Scott, arise and lead us. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Should Tony Blair decline the knighthood to save the Queen's blushes? Yes, 87%. Yes, 84%. Yes, 96%. And thousands of you have voted. Keep voting. Keep signing the petition. Let's hear from Mike in South Carolina. Go ahead, Mike. Hey, George. It's great to talk to you again, buddy. And you, brother. Go ahead. Uh, I have a couple of questions and a comment about the uh, Tony Blair situation. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, uh, that uh, knighting is one of the only things the Queen can do, but it, does she also not appoint everyone to the House of Lords? That's a very good point. She doesn't, uh, but she titularly does, and it's a point I meant to make earlier to Angus. The reason Tony Blair will not go into the House of Lords, Mike, is that one and the same, the most banal and the most degrading. He will not go into the House of Lords because if he did, he would have to register his income and where it came from. And given that his income is obscene and that it came from some of the most obscene people on the planet, he cannot go into the House of Lords because then we'd know he'd have to declare exactly where he gets his filthy lucre from. Carry on, Mike. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, uh, but I was, I was pretty sure that was one of the things she did do. But She does. Uh, it's in her uh, name, uh, but it's on the recommendation of the Prime Minister. Okay. Well, one of the other things that I was going to uh, uh, talk about is, is that, uh, uh, you, know, you know, back in the day, and this is around the 9-11 uh, uh, date, when, uh, when I first started hearing from Tony Blair, uh, I actually had a modicum of respect for him. I thought that, you know, he might actually be, you know, a, a, a re re good prime minister. And then he quickly dashed all that stuff. He's destroyed the left and, and uh, uh, all the things that he did regarding the Iraq war. I mean, if you go back and look at this, there's such a mountain of evidence. If you start looking at the chokeout report and you look at uh, the Downing Street memos and, and, you know, how he colluded with George Bush to fix the intelligence around going to war. I mean, all of this evidence is so overwhelming that there's no way that, that he could not be you know, considered a war criminal. And the other question is, is the uh, uh, UK uh, in the ICC? The yes, yes, Court? we are. are. Unlike the United States, we are. But uh, right, uh, yeah. the chances of Blair appearing there are for the moment remote. 
Well, I understand that, but I mean, he doesn't make that decision. People in other countries actually make the decision. Yeah, whether or not he a has state. To yeah, you're right. A state would have and, to and, bring and, a case against him. Yeah, a yeah. state. And and of course, that happened. That happened with George Bush. Even though George Bush took us out of the International Criminal Court before he invaded Iraq, for that very reason. And uh, uh, but there are he has been taken. You know, to the Hague on this, and there are people waiting for him to leave the country. Him and the rest of the Bush crime family. I mean, these things must be addressed, and and we need to keep really close notes on when this actual nighting is going to occur. And yes, uh, a show of force is required. Come, come people. over, Mike. We'd be delighted to see you uh, in June in Windsor. Trust me, it's a very lovely place in uh, June. Now, I brought you the. Awful breaking news about the fire in the Bronx, uh, which 200 firefighters have been battling all day since 11 a.m. this morning. Uh, and a very large number of people, including children, have been killed. So the first question I need to ask our intrepid American colleague, Rachel Blevins, is, Rachel, thank you for being with us. What news can you bring us? Uh, of this dreadful fire. Well, it is an absolute tragedy, George. So far, we're hearing that at least 19 people have died and likely dozens have been injured. And this is one of those cases where you're talking about at least a 19-story apartment building. We don't know yet what caused the fire. We don't know yet exactly when it's going to be put out. But one of the most tragic parts about this is that this story doesn't stand alone. It was just earlier this week we heard another story about a massive apartment fire over in Philadelphia and multiple people were killed as a result of that. And so we know that obviously firefighters are doing everything they can to contain the fire right now. But that is definitely something we will continue to follow and hope that, you know, they can recover as many people as possible. I, I was sure that I remembered uh, that there had been a terrible fire in Philadelphia just this week. So that is two within a week. Uh, this is bound to raise questions about the fireproof nature of these apartment blocks and the uh, and the ability to stop fires spreading throughout them with such devastating effect absolutely it always comes back to infrastructure at the end of the day you know we talk about how the United States will pour billions and even trillions of dollars into other countries. But when it comes to our own infrastructure here, it always seems to be too little too late. And that is incredibly unfortunate that, you know, we're seeing another story like this. And the hope is that, you know, it doesn't continue. I'm sorry, my, my dog has decided he's going to join the conversation. That's all right. He's, uh, he's, always, uh, he's always welcome. Let's go to uh, some of the other um, exotic uh, wildlife that uh, a year ago exactly on uh, January 6th uh, um, protested and broke into uh, the, uh, the Capitol building. I don't buy this idea that it was an insurrection. I've seen insurrections. I'm watching insurrections right now in Kazakhstan, for example. That's an insurrection. That is a challenge for power. That's not what happened on January 6th, although the Democrats and the media that support them have continued to call it that for an ulterior motive, I suspect, 
of trying to use it as a means of stopping Donald Trump from running for the presidency next time. Uh, what's your take on the commemoration, the speech by Joe Biden? He didn't mention Trump by name, but it wasn't hard to work out. It was him he was talking about. Uh, how, how does the land lie on January 6th? You know, I would say that after watching the way that Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and all of the members of Congress who gathered together for that visual on the caps on the steps of the Capitol, rather on the anniversary of January 6th, after watching that, I think they all belong in Hollywood because it was absolutely laughable to see all of these people. And you know why they're there. You know why they're acting like that? Because they are the ones who think that they may have been in danger if there had been an actual insurrection. And I agree with you. I mean, especially when we look back at this footage, it is one of those cases where the media has tried to make it out to be something that it simply is not. I mean, the vice president of this country stood there and compared it to 9-11. That to me is insane, not just for the fact that 3,000 people died on that day, but also for the fact that millions of people around the world have paid the price for 9-11 every single day since it happened. And so this idea that something like this, and especially the way that the United States government has handled it. I mean, when we look at everything that transpired that day, there are a number of reports of people who believe that there were federal informants in the crowd going in. I mean, there was at least one man who has a little bit of an interesting story where he was seen on a number of different videos. He had a MAGA hat on. He was telling people we should go in and storm the Capitol. And then all of a sudden this summer, he magically got taken off of the FBI's most wanted list. He's never been charged with anything. Yet there's a number of people who were there who had their faces posted all over bus stops and all over cities saying that they were wanted wanted by the U.S. government. And so it is insane to me to look at a day where, yes, you know, people did go into the U.S. Capitol. Yes, in a number of instances, they were let into the U.S. Capitol. And now they are made out to be the equivalent of the modern day 9-11. I mean, it is a story that belongs in Hollywood for how just ridiculous and truly dramatic it is. Yeah, they are uh, acting, uh, but they're, they're acting for a purpose. Uh, the purpose, at least, is to uh, demonize uh, the Republican Party and, in particular, uh, Donald Trump, its last president. Uh, but uh, most, it's to pave the way for a legal move to try and block Trump from running. Uh, do you think there's any possibility of that? And if that were to happen, what would the consequences be? You know, I think there's always, a, I never want to rule out the possibility in the case that they are able to make something happen. Now, as far as what we've seen so far, it doesn't look like that's going to be the case when it comes to Trump running again in 2024. But I also think that they have to take a step back and look at, just as you said, what are the consequences of that? Because we have to remember that here in the United States, more than half of the people who voted for Trump in 2020 believe that there was some some sort of voter fraud that played a role in the outcome of the election. So if that's the case, that means you have millions of Americans who already don't trust the system as a whole, already believe that it was rigged or tampered with in some way. 
And now you come in and you say that the guy that they would vote for can't run. I mean, that sounds like something that the U.S. would try to instigate and make happen in another country, let alone in its own country. Now, on the flip side of that, especially since we've watched Democrats sit there and try to make this all about Trump and try to remind the American people of, remember just how horrible it would be if Trump were able to come back into office. Well, then what that does is that distracts from the fact that Democrats really don't have a plan. I mean, you look at this party right now, you look at the fact that they've got Joe Biden and then they've got Kamala Harris, who literally wants to compare January 6th to 9-11. I mean, I do not know what other contenders they have to put up there or what else they have to run on, because we also have to remember that their whole thing was to say, give us the power in every single portion of government and we will give you what you want. We will finally follow through on those campaign promises. Well, not only have they not done that, but it seems like now all they can do is just point at Trump and say, well, anything can be better than him. On that point, uh, one guy, wasn't he, the one senator was... Uh, was uh, stopping their uh, great uh, rebuilding uh, plans. Is that still so? Is it still log jammed or is it dead now? So it's still, at least from how I understand it, it still hasn't gone through. They had kind of put off on taking a vote until they feel like they can get that support. And so at the moment, their huge build back better plan is still kind of hanging in the balance now as to when we'll get a vote, I don't know just yet, but it'll certainly be interesting to see because it is one of those cases where, I mean, I think voters have to look at that and realize, well, wait a second, if, and especially, I mean, I know that we've talked about this before, just the way that they do all of this, where they take all of these different issues and they cram it into a $2 trillion bill instead of taking individual individual issues and actually making members of Congress vote on them. I mean, I still, it is one of those cases where I do not understand why they do things the way that they do them and why they make it about forcing you to vote for something based solely on your political party and not actually based on how you feel about the issue. Well, uh, it's, uh, of course, a big week internationally. Uh, there are uh, U.S.-Russia talks this week. Uh, accompanied by a steady drumbeat of war propaganda from Secretary Blinken, uh, threatening Russia with uh, sanctions as extreme as those on North Korea uh, and so on. Is there any cause for optimism that we can take some of the heat out of the international situation this week in these talks? You know, I... Is there a cause for optimism? That's a good question. Now, I will say that at the end of the day, there is always that hope that maybe there will be an adult in the room who will realize that if the US and Russia keep going down the path that they're going down, it's not going to end well for anyone. However, unfortunately, that adult really isn't in the Biden administration at the moment because we continue to see people like Antony Blinken, who this week, I mean, I feel like we've heard more from him in the last week than we have in several months, yeah. where he was talking and claiming, you know, he made that statement saying that, oh, if you let Russians into your house, then they aren't likely to leave very soon. When I think we've all watched two decades of U.S. foreign policy, where the U.S. has not only 
only gone into people's houses, but also bombed their houses and invaded their countries and then continued to occupy them for two decades. So clearly he needs to read a little bit of a history book. However, when it comes to where the U.S. is standing, it also is incredibly troubling. Blinken's responses to this security deal that Russia was trying to offer on both their end and from the U.S. and NATO, it's crazy to me to think that he would sit there and say, oh, no, we won't agree to that or we won't even consider that when at the end of the day, you would think that avoiding World War III would be what they all want. But maybe, so. maybe my pessimism about it will uh, not quite come into effect this week and maybe their talks will lead to something substantial. Remember her name, Rachel Blevins. Thank you very much indeed for joining us from Washington, D.C. Will Ghislaine Maxwell be granted a retrial? Yes, 48. No, 52 on Twitter. Yes, 67. No, 34 on YouTube. And on Telegram, yes, 56. No, 44. Quite close. Get voting on my Twitter feed, on my Telegram channel, and on my YouTube uh, channel. Now, uh, I'm uh, coming uh, to Liverpool in a couple of months' time, in March. Actually, there's the uh, poster for it. The Hope Street Theatre in Liverpool, Monday the 28th of March at 7pm. And you can get your tickets from ticketquarter.co.uk. Now, remember, these are very, very small venues. Uh, the number of tickets is extremely restricted. So don't think, well, it's nearly three months away, I can wait, or it is three months away, I can wait. Don't do that, because if you do that, you might well be disappointed. So please, get your tickets now, uh, so that we know that we've got a full house in the Hope Street Theatre. Now, Andrew Loney is not just a brilliant uh, author, he is an indefatigable searcher after facts and truth, and in particular, that truth that is oftentimes locked up uh, in, uh, in trusts and in universities and in various uh, files in various institutions that ought to be available to the historian and thus the broad general public, but frequently isn't. And Andrew Loney is one of those, and I think the most successful of those, who fights for our right to know, for freedom of information in the field of history. Now, he's been on the show several times because many of his interests are also great interests of mine, uh, but the first time he was on the show was to talk about Lord Louis Mountbatten, the uncle, of course, of the heir to the throne, uh, Prince Charles, and uh, uh, the uh, cousin, or perhaps uncle also, I don't know, uh, he'll tell us, of the Duke of Edinburgh that we were speaking of just a few moments ago. It turned out to be the most watched clip ever in the history of the mother of all talk shows, and that is saying something. Now, breaking, he's got new news about Mountbatten. We're better to break it than here on the mother of all talk shows. Andrew, thank you uh, very much for coming back on the show. What new on the Mountbatten story? It's grisly enough as we already know from you. Is it, has it got any better in the last uh, week or two? 
uh, or is it turning even more ugly? No, I mean, there's some good news. And, and thank you very much for asking me back. Um, Prince Charles uh, called Mountbatten his honorary grandfather. He's actually his great nephew. Um, Prince, the Duke of Edinburgh was uh, Mountbatten's nephew. Um, and the developments are that we've had our hearing uh, last month to look at um, all the appeal that was brought by the Cabinet Office and Southampton University uh, against the Information Commission's decision in 2019 that these Mountbatten diaries and letters, which were bought for the public with public monies uh, in 2011, should be made available to me and other researchers. And this fight has been very much for the principle of making these files available for all researchers, not just because I'd written about the Mountbatten's. Now, the good news is we've got 99% of the material. Um, the interesting news is that it's all pretty innocuous stuff, and one wonders why the government made such a fuss about it. But we're still fighting over 100 redactions. Now, these are redactions made for various reasons. Um, the uh, Data Protection Act, the Freedom of Information Act, uh, Communications of the Queen is the main one, Section 37. And it's very clear from looking at those redactions and the ones that I've been able to establish um, is that many of those uh, names are already in the public domain, often in previous editions, for example, of books about the Mountbatten's written uh, under with their authority. Uh, and the references to the Queen are pretty innocent. They're, they're, the remarks like I had tea with Lilibet and Prince Philip came across for a ride or a shoot. So I'm afraid this is just part of the culture of secrecy in Whitehall. Uh, and this is a face-saving operation. They should have released these documents 10 years ago. They've been forced to do so by my campaign uh, and the decision of the Information Commissioner. Uh, and they're just trying to, to mount a rearguard action. We'll know the decision of the tribunal uh, in a few weeks' time. And I will be fighting not just to return my costs, which now come to close to a quarter of a, oh, sorry, a third of a million pounds. And so one wonders how much public money has been spent fighting this. I estimate about a million pounds. Um, but also it, what's emerged is at the same time, the correspondence between Edwina and Nehru, the Indian prime minister with whom she had an affair, that correspondence was bought by us for the public and has not been released. And so the next battle will be to get those uh, letters released, because I think those will be much less innocuous than the diaries and letters that have been released. Well, so, call, call me, call me uh, distrustful, but I smell a rat when I hear that the government spent perhaps a million pounds to stop files being opened, only for when those files are opened, for them to be entirely innocuous. That doesn't sit right with me. I mean, I'm not Sherlock Holmes, but it makes me suspicious. Does it make you suspicious? Well, I mean, I fought this battle in the hope that there would be material to be released. We now have 99% of it. I spent the weekend going through it, 30,000 pages, and there is nothing there that's going to scare the horses or upset the Queen. So it's only these 100 redactions, and even on the 100 redactions, it's been, we've been able to establish, my lawyers and myself, that this material that we can identify, uh, often it's just blank bits of paper, but the stuff that is often just a missing name, like a detective or valet, has often been named, often on the same page in the diary or letter, or in other parts of the diaries and letters. So uh, I think the sad thing, I'd love to be able to say there's, there's enormous disclosures here that will change our view of Indian independence, for example. 
But the fact is that this has just been a face-saving operation, that they've been caught out. Uh, I do think that the narrow correspondence will reveal all sorts of things. The fact that perhaps Mountbatten's wife had an affair with Nehru before independence, that he was not neutral in independence, uh, uh, and that the Pakistan, um, Pakistanis have a justifiable grievance against the Mountbatten's. Um, but it's all part of, I think, a bigger question about how we defer to the royal family, uh, particularly the, the government and the cabinet office, uh, and how our history has been censored. And, you know, this is the mark of, of a dictatorship like China um, or a banana republic. It's not the mark of a, of a formed democracy. Uh, and I think that's the thing that needs to be changed. We, we, we can't curate our past. We as historians have to use these documents as the building blocks to tell the story of the past, and we have to be given access to them. I mean, one, my other concern is that there's favoritism, that there are tame historians who are fed stuff who will say the right things and not scare the horses. Uh, and there are others who are perhaps a bit more independent, who actually are out to get the truth about the, of the story of our history. And they have been denied access. And I know a lot of historians feel very strongly about this issue, not just me. Perhaps this battle was fought as, uh, as it were, as a skirmish, albeit an expensive one, uh, with the main battle to come over the Edwina Nehru correspondence. Is that a possible explanation? I think that's absolutely right. I think there are two things here. One is that uh, this was trying to be a line in the sand to keep one off the more important things uh, and a way of, of, of basically trying to break uh, people like me who are determined to get to the story of the truth and to put us off ever trying to bother again. Uh, um, but I think there's also the, the ministerial direction which the government used uh, as an excuse to give them control over these diaries um, uh, they then dropped that objection in the hearing. Uh, and I think there are some big questions about uh, whether this ministerial direction, which no government department seems to know about, no one seems to know who signed it, they haven't produced any documentation about it, uh, uh, it wasn't produced in the House of Commons. I think that they have basically tried to enact some legislation in a, without a proper authority, and they're going to be caught out. Um, but yeah, I think this is an example to prevent others from, from trying to, to do what I'm doing. If, um, uh, Andrew, uh, I, I know quite a bit about this area uh, and about this period, though not nearly as much as you, uh, but I'm well familiar with the feeling in Pakistan and amongst uh, generations of Pakistani leaders that if Lord Mountbatten's wife was having an affair, a sexual affair, with the leader of the Indian Congress Party prior to independence and partition, with Mountbatten's knowledge and approval, which is what is widely believed, then that represents a big betrayal of Pakistani interests, of Indian Muslim interests at that time. What do you say? I, I say that's absolutely right. And, I, and I, I do allude to this in my book, which came out uh, two years ago. I think there's a lot of evidence that the affair was sexual and the affair began before August 1947. And that comes from testimony of people who saw them together, uh, people who worked with them. Uh, and this is just, again, part of the cover-up. But certainly this correspondence will, uh, I think, prove it. Uh, and that's what they're clearly worried about. 
Uh, I think one of the other ridiculous things in the, in the hearing was that the head of the Pakistan India Department from the Foreign Office was brought out and said with a straight face that uh, some of the disclosures in the diary, remember this is the private diaries of individuals uh, and, and, and letters between a married couple, that whatever they said to each other would actually rock uh, Anglo-Indian um, or Anglo-Pakistan uh, relations. You know, which is a ridiculous thing 75 years after the event. The other scandal, of course, is that the archivist at Southampton who closed the archive then wrote to the uh, cabinet office and came into a cosy relationship to uh, edit the diaries himself. The, neither Southampton nor the cabinet office have uh, answered any freedom of information requests to explain how much money has been spent on this attempt to suppress the diaries and letters. But, you know, my own feeling is they spent five million buying them and they spent a million pounds trying to prevent us seeing them. Wow. Well, more power to your elbow, Andrew. And I look forward to us talking again once you've got uh, access, as I hope you will, to this potentially dynamite correspondence. Andrew Loney, thank you very much indeed. You must read Andrew's uh, books, by the way, not just on Mark Batten, though that was a masterpiece. Uh, but on uh, Guy Burgess, uh, the, uh, the Soviet spy, uh, as part of the Cambridge uh, ring of spy. He's really terrific, absolutely terrific. Uh, social media, Ian Muir says, should Tony Blair decline the knighthood? No, he should keep it. He should show the world what a useless, immoral, warmongering, duplicitous X, X, X he is. Mr. Galloway, please tell him. Thank you. He's told. Dave Evans says he should, but he won't. The guy has no morals. The only thing that Tony cares about is Tony, regardless of the cost to other people's dignity or indeed their life. And Rob says, sadly, I don't think he has the sense to do the right thing. He's probably already planning his next money-spinning speaking tour off the back of it. And David Fenton says they are both complicit in this. She's every bit as bad as him. She is proving to be the deaf adder that stoppeth her ear. They are from the same litter, hence the plaudits and honours. Duncan says causing constitutional monarchists to turn against the Queen will only hasten the day he is President Blair. He doesn't care. In fact, he probably is laughing his head off. And Given says Tony should accept it with his warmonger reputation. He meets the criteria. And Logic Dictates says he should pass it to Prince Andrew and solidify his rightful place in that mountain of moral fortitude that is the royal family. And Crimson Blade says I couldn't care less. Blair being offered a knighthood only shows how much the establishment value these muppets and puppets, both the monarchy and the capitalist system, need to go. Ah, on you go. Why not overthrow it? Uh, and with it go their titles, lands, and their establishment stooges they call politicians. You need to join the Workers' Party of Britain, of which I'm the leader. But thanks for that little bit of education. And Political Dark Side podcast says Blair shouldn't be allowed the opportunity to decline. The knighthood should be rescinded. I care not for the blushes of the queen either.
It is the legend that is Norma up next, and probably lastly, in uh, Bristol. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, um, George. <laughs> um, Angus Scott, he was a great, I thought he was great. Wasn't he a wonderful guest, yes. Yeah, now, over the million votes, great. And actually, I did say last week I thought it would be far-fetched to organise a protest, but he rubber-stamped it. But although I hope there's going to be thousands of people to go to Windsor on the 13th of June, it must be organised officially because do you think our right to protest may be stopped by the government for fear it, you know, it might escalate into violence or something? Because I hope not. No, uh, we will have to, uh, I mean, if necessary, I'll uh, do it myself. I'll do it with uh, Scott, uh, uh, with Angus Scott. I'll do it with anyone of goodwill uh, who wants to uh, officially organise a protest, Mm. which, of course, would be a lawful one, would be a peaceful one, uh, but a necessary one. I'm I'm absolutely uh, certain that thousands of people would come to it, especially in the summertime, especially in Windsor. And may God preserve us uh, long enough, Norma, to be on it ourselves. Well, I can't entirely walk down the street, George. (laughs) (laughs) I'll push you in a chair if you're prepared to come. Oh, that'd be lovely, yeah. Well, there you are, that's a deal. If you come, I'll get a chair and I'll push you right at the front of that march. That'd be great. I I think there's... Look, it's slightly tricky. Nobody wants to be throwing, uh, you know, insults or uh, bad words at a 94-year-old woman in the twilight of her reign. Um, But at the same time, we cannot allow this to pass, Norma. No, I'm, I'm totally with you, but the thing is, she'll be 96 in April, actually, and she's becoming fragile, and they may have the excuse that they want to protect her. That's what... They must yeah, be of caused. course, we'll not be able to breach the walls of Windsor Castle, well, no. and we wouldn't try to. Uh, no. But we have a right to be in Windsor uh, to oh, yeah. make clear our disapproval uh, of uh, this heinous act, which disfigures uh, British public life and besmirches the name of the monarch and the royal family itself. Now, while I've got you on, uh, Norma... Uh, yeah. The the Colston Four were acquitted in the court. Yes, uh, they were. Tell, tell us your feelings on that. Uh, well, my feelings are they're very there's a parallel with Tony Blair because the fact that um, years and years ago so many people came over from Western Africa and they drowned and they were killed. And well, the they didn't got, come over. They were dragged over in the whole. Well, of they ships. were. They yeah. were like sardines, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, and the fact that Tony Blair also had a, a war that wasn't right and thousands of people were killed, I think there are parallels there. Well done. What's Bristol. the feeling in Bristol over there? Well, over, 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 the, over the whole thing, um, I get a feeling that people are very pleased. Of course, caution needs to be needed there, although they got off and I'm pleased because... You cannot then give the okay to other people to start pulling down statues because of some political unrest. So there needs to be caution, but my God, I was happy. Okay, Norma, thank you very much indeed for that. It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, uh, then do come back next week at the same time in the same place. 
and do bring another viewer or listener with you. You can watch on a bewildering plethora of platforms now, uh, from TikTok to Instagram to Twitter to Facebook to YouTube to Telegram uh, to what was that other one that I kept forgetting? Was it Twitch? Twitch, you can still watch on Twitch and you can listen, of course, in the United States on FM in DC on AM, coast to coast. I bid you a very good night. We asked you to help the podcast reach the magic number of 100 countries. I'm unusually proud of this, as you may be able to tell. And you answered the call. South Korea and Moldova took us over the hill with the Moats podcast now downloaded in 101 countries. Little old us in 101 countries. So if you're not already listening to this genuinely worldwide sensation, then please subscribe so you can listen to Moats anywhere, anytime from every corner of the earth. It's the distilled version of this show, shorn of all the peripheral material, just pure moats, 90 minutes instead of three hours. So if you do it and you love it, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're a Spotify user, please follow us and let us see when the next record broken will be. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.